The Money Cafe is brought to you by Eureka Report, your one-stop shop for all things finance. To sign up for your free 15-day trial, head to eurekareport.com.au. Now it's time to enjoy today's episode. Hello, I'm Alan Kohler, founder of Eureka Report, finance presenter on ABC News and columnist for The New Daily. And I'm Stephen Main, contributor at Eureka Report, founder of Crikey, shareholder advocate and City of Manningham councillor. And we are The Money, Money Cafe. Cafe. Now, Stephen, I'm very disappointed in you. You seem to be supporting the POMs over the stumping. Now, uh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm very, very disappointed. Uh, now, I need you to briefly, not to uh, justify yourself. Come on. Well, it was I- just a... St- I mean, if I may introduce the topic... It was just a stumping, right? It was it was it was a straightforward stumping. Are we saying that you're only allowed to stump, uh, have a stumping, when the keeper's standing up? No, look, I'm, I am getting smashed on Twitter on this issue. I didn't realise how nationalistic uh, we Australians and Poms are on these issues. Um, but look, I'm an old stickler for you know when in doubt, you know, be generous. Whether it's you know John Landy bending over to help Ron Clark back up in 1956 when he fell over and you know immortalised in a statue, that sort of if in doubt take the high road approach. But he wouldn't have helped up a pom. Well, I mean, I if, he was an Aussie. Well, Come let's, on, let's just go back. Imagine if um, Pat, when Johnny was halfway off the ground, changed his mind and called him back. What would we be talking about now? And then we went on to win the test. Pat Cummins, climate change believer. Indigenous, uh, you know, really, really progressive, and what, the fairest but, uh, guy around. We've moved so far from Sandpaper Gate. He actually called him back when he was right, within his rights to claim the wicket, but he took the high ground, read the room, could see there was disquiet, listened to uh, what the other captain was saying, and 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 made a call. And and that's what captaincy and leadership's all about. That's the Australian way. Would that have been an easier sell in the world debate? than what yeah, we've got now? Well, the, uh, yeah. Well, I mean, we shouldn't take up too much of this podcast with this, but really, I mean, he was just out. It's like, it's, it's, why would you call him back? Someone's get, someone got caught. Why would you call him back? Well, I mean, the, I bloke's, mean, the bloke's gone out. Yeah, That's well, it. Well, I guess the two points is there was, it's grey as to whether it was the end of the over and he wasn't seeking advantage. So it was mean and tricky, I thought. But uh, anyway, look, it is what it is. I must reflect, actually, that the, the Headingley test starts tonight, right? Um, and I spent three days on the Western Terrace, which is the most notorious. Uh, it's like Bay 13 at the MCG in 1997 when Australia won by an innings and 61 runs, I think, and Jason Gillespie took nine for Matthew Elliott, made 199. And it was quite funny that the Western Terrace people, they were all chanting, who ate all the pies? Who ate all the pies? You fat bastard, you fat bastard, you ate all the pies to Shane Warne. And he's fat. He's round. His ass is on the ground. Shane Warne. Shane Warne. They were doing this all day. <laughs> they had a local rugby team offering security because it had got out of hand in previous years. So there's all these big burly skinhead rugby guys sort of keeping everyone honest. And, and I did this trick where I went to the uh, loudspeaker people and said, I've lost my friend. Can you please call him out over the loudspeaker? And so they suddenly say, 
Would Ivan Millat from Australia, Ivan Millat from Australia, please report to the Yorkshire <laughs> County Cricket Club office. <laughs> Ivan Millat from Australia. And this ripple goes around the ground. And then everyone else started doing this. And it even went to the West Indies in the next tour when people are calling out Kathy Freeman and Malcolm <laughs> Fraser. And That's very good. Funny days. Well, anyway, I think the whole thing has been cooked up by Channel 9 to improve ratings, which it's it will do. It'll be how good is this Absolutely for ratings? Absolutely for ratings. So I Channel think the, 7 um, must be regretting not buying the Ashes. I think, I think Channel 9, Peter Costello, etc., have paid the, uh, the MCC members to kick up in the way that yeah. they did. Well, Costello deserves free flights there to sit there and catch up with John Howard, sitting exactly. next to John Howard. That was a massive breakthrough. I mean, have they even spoken? They were know. sitting together at Lord's. Were they? Before the big blow-up of 2023. Beautiful. Anyway. Uh, let's just review the financial year briefly. Um, uh, you've got a deal of the year to mention. What is it? Look, yeah, I think the deal of the year has to be to the US private equity firm Staple Street, which paid under $100 million Australian dollars for Dominion Voting Systems and then sued the Mur- Murdochs and got a $1.2 billion Australian dollar settlement for the uh, fake elections, oh, uh, rigged yeah, machines yeah, allegations. So for private equity, a 10-bagger on litigation against the Murdochs, the, the world's most powerful family, who are worth $30 billion. That's pretty good going. Well done, Staple Street, I say. Well, I've got an Australian deal of the year, um, which is the subject of my interview in Eureka Report this morning, in fact, uh, who is Kim Truter, of, uh, the CEO of Burgundy Diamond Mines, which you've never heard of. Kim Truter was the um, CEO of Rio Tinto's diamond business, Argyle, and he be also became, then he became the CEO of De Beers' Canadian business. He now runs Burgundy Diamond Mines, which is an ASX-listed company. And in March, they bought Ikati Diamond Mine in northern Canada on the edge of the Arctic Circle for $136 million US. And Ikati's uh, cash flow... They bought it off the receivers, no, off the off the lenders who had taken it over because the, the company that owned it went broke. And uh, the the annual cash flow of the business is two hundred million US. So they got it for they got it for all, almost half the cash yeah. flow. That's like anyone who bought a coal mine off Rio Tinto or BHP in the last five years as they uh, tried to go clean and green and gifted their yeah. cash machine coal mines for Sotol. So Burgundy Diamond Mines has been suspended for months now as it, as it did this deal and it had to raise money from uh, sort of big placement and all this stuff to pay for it. And uh, it's coming back on tomorrow on the ASX. So keep an eye on it, Stephen. I think it... Uh, Sounds like it, a good AGM uh, prospect, <laughs> Alan. Always looking for new talent. Given the way that the ranks of the ASX yeah. are thinning out at the moment, I've looked at the winners and losers on the, for the uh, for the financial year on the ASX in the all ordinaries. Yeah, the big loser, the biggest loser, Star. No, City Chic Collective. Oh yes, one of those COVID online flyers that then it fell was, back to earth. Uh, yeah, well, so it it's a um, uh, mainly online. It's got it does have stores in Australia, but it's mainly yeah. a global online yeah, retailer like, like of plus yeah. size women's clothing. Yeah, that's its thing. Yeah, and uh, the stock's gone down from six bucks to forty cents, and um, it uh, shareholder shit collective. It's a shocker, isn't it? That's really crashed. Well, they they got caught. Um, yeah, they got caught after the after. The uh, pandemic ended and everyone swung back to 
uh, thing. But they expanded too quickly. They bought a whole lot of businesses in the US and UK. Um, but the interesting thing is the big winner on the ASX is a company, another retailer called Satire. Oh, yes. C-E-T-T-I-R-E, yep. started by Dean Mintz. Um, and uh, whereas uh, City Sheet Collective has come down about 90%, uh, it's gone up about ninety percent, and uh, it's a ten bagger. So what's that? You know, ten. It's tenfold. But the thing is, it's only got back to where it was the year before. Yeah. Um, and uh, so there you go. I mean, it's a, it's a luxury onli- online only mm. uh, luxury goods retailer. Um, so look, uh, you know, retailers, you know, they get their ups and downs. Yeah, it is interesting how there aren't that many sort of superstar stocks at the moment, are there? Like. You've been them, bemoaning look, the fact that they're all getting taken they're over. All getting, they're all disappearing. You, you know, I spent four or five hours yesterday starting a list of every company that was once worth more than a billion dollars on the ASX that's no longer listed. And in four hours, I got to 120 companies. You'll so a, You love a list. I love a list. But you sooner, do love I reckon sooner there's going to be a, a more valuable sort of former companies list than current companies list. I mean, right now we've got takeovers for Costa, United Malt, Best and Less, Origin, Invercare and Mincor. They're all going. And since COVID, we've also lost Sydney Airport, Osnet, AOL Property, Focus Communications, Coca-Cola Amateur, Crown Resorts, Infigen Energy, Slater and Gordon, Spark Infrastructure, Village Roadshow, Virgin Australia, which went broke, Oz Minerals, Origin and Afterpay. I mean, who's being listed? Who are the new would, companies that are replacing out, all these well, X companies? We don't know them because they're all tiny. And the, but but I would point out to you, Stephen, that there have in the past twelve months been about one hundred and twenty new listings. Nothing of note. Exactly. Nothing that's right. of no. They're scale. all companies, but but you got to start somewhere. All these companies, well. will, all these businesses, will be companies of note at some point, and then you will bemoan when they are taken over. I think there They'll is a systemic issue here. Complaining about There's that. There's a systemic issue here where the ASX offers a high cost, excessive monopoly fees model. The returns are better with private equity and long-term super funds, you've got too much foreign ownership and you've got too much market concentration. So you put all those things together and you finish up with a few big cap giants from the BHPs and the Rios and the, the big four banks and the Coles and Woolies and the West Farmers of the world. And then you've got this thinned out sort of middle tier range where if they haven't been taken over, what's wrong with them? They've got some founder or something sitting there. And um, and I think also the scrutiny, the ESG, the, the people like me annoying people, uh, public companies, is making it less attractive. And so, um, you know, I'm actually worried that, um, that the primacy of the ASX, one of the great shareholder nations with the 7 million Australians who own shares more than any other country in the world, that that's falling away because the industry funds are getting too big, private equity is getting too big, and uh, we just don't perform well in, in generating multinational companies listed in Australia. I'll uh, stop whinging now. Fair enough. Well, it's, it's on another topic that you whinge about uh, is gambling. Uh, there's been a gambling report from the uh, Parliamentary Committee headed by Peter Murphy, MP, um, now you've been you've been campaigning against pokies and gambling for a long, long time, Stephen. But I've never written a column as good as your one this morning in the New Daily about gambling. I thought that was excellent. Thank you, Stephen. Those suggestions that you put up of having a revenue reduction target. Currently, it's twenty-five billion world's worst, 
and you suggested, you know, as a nation, we should set a target of reducing this to perhaps, you know, 15 billion in 10 years or something. And the other beauty that you recommended that this committee failed to recommend was all the online apps have to tell you exactly what your losses are over the last week, last month, last year, and since you started, just like a bank statement. What fantastic suggestions and why haven't these been taken up? I have to tell you that the second suggestion about the app telling the having the true win-loss position is not my suggestion, but it's uh, a suggestion by a fellow called Jake Manier, who lives in Perth and is chairman of a technology business called Force Technology. So I, I actually stumbled upon his submission to the committee, uh, uh, thought it was terrific. Uh, didn't have any details in there as to who Jake Manier is. It just had his signature on it. So I so I Googled the crap out of him and found him, <laughs> tracked him down, rang him up and said, is this is this you, Jake? He said, he said. You love doing that, don't you? Said, Old school foot leather journalism. He said, he said, you've made my day. He said, <laughs> well, you've made him famous now. You've read, you've read my submission. That's fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> He's, uh, so we had a good chat. He's a good guy. Um, and uh, they actually found, for the New Daily, found a picture of him yeah, to put in the collar. Yeah. <laughs> and it was, a, it was a great suggestion because the failure to sort of publicise the scale of the revenues and the losses is part of the industry's secret source. So Victoria is the only state that requires their um, 500 pokies venues to release their venue level losses. So I can tell you that the Shopping Town Hotel in, in Manningham, it's, it's about 18 million a year at the moment. It's the 24th most lucrative venue in the state, et cetera, et cetera. No other state does this. And companies like Woolworths, now Endeavour Group, they've never actually disclosed their pokies revenue. So when they demerged Endeavour Group, Brad Banducci came out and said, oh, it's only about 10% of earnings from the pokies. You know, you come up with a figure of 700 million effectively. I'm sitting there going, but hang on, your 79 venues in Victoria, the losses are 660 million there alone because I can see it from all the data here. So what he was doing was he was excluding Bruce Matheson's 25% stake in the joint venture. He was netting off state tax and he comes up with this low figure of 700 million when the actual gambling losses at, at, at the 300 pokies pubs owned by Woolies Endeavour is actually about $1.6, $1.7 billion. But it's not disclosed. So disclosure is the secret. Sunlight is the best disinfectant. Tell the gamblers how much they're losing. Tell the public how much the, the venues and the operators are taking from gamblers. And then we can have a decent discussion about meeting your revenue reduction target of lopping $10 billion of revenue off this predatory industry. Excellent. I couldn't agree more. Um, I've got a uh, just finally, we're just talking about the RBA. We need to get on to questions, but just on the RBA this week, they paused. Um, I've uh, got a column going into the New Daily tomorrow uh, in which I propose that uh, that's it. There, are, there will be no more rate hikes. 4.1% I'm suggesting is the peak. So you can hold me to that and when I'm uh, next, August, uh, next uh, month when they announce another rate hike, you can say, Alan, as usual, you were wrong. And next month we'll also know if the governor has been given the punt or whether the four contenders, as best I can read it, Stephen Kennedy, Treasury Secretary, Jenny Wilkinson, Finance Department boss, Guy DeBell, and former Deputy, and Michelle Bullock, current Deputy, which of them has the nod as opposed to the fifth horse in the field, Dr Lowe, the seven-year incumbent? He won't, it won't be Dr Lowe. 
I was interested that Jane Hume came out and backed him yesterday. And this is one of those appointments that I think it's better if it's bipartisan. As Elbow is learning with the voice, it's amazing how easy things can be if it's bipartisan. So a little nudge, nudge to Dutton and co. Are you all right if we go with Jenny Wilkinson or, you know, will you come out and support if we go another term for Dr Lowe for two years and then everyone agrees? I think that's much better than they should never have sacked Lowe or why do they reappoint Lowe, which could be a divisive so issue. So until I started reading the stories about, you know, in the Fin Review about the contenders, I hadn't thought of Guy Bell, and I think that's a really interesting but a uh, really interesting idea. I mean, I, I think it's more like, most likely to be Jenny Wilkinson because yeah. she's a woman. Yes. Uh, and I think that they probably think they that it's time to. it was a woman. But yeah. um, I think Guy DeBell's an interesting idea. Well, he's had a walk on the wild side working for Twiggy well, that's for a it. bit. He's, and uh, he's, he's had a walk a bit. on the wild side. That's right. <laughs> the wild <laughs> west. <laughs> exactly. Uh. So anyway, but uh, we'll probably next time we get together in a fortnight, we'll probably know if it is low. Yeah. All right, we should do some questions. Gareth says, has the Reserve Bank adopted uncertainty as a method of moderating demand in the economy? It seems like they are deliberately being difficult to predict, which might work for them better than their earlier attempts at forward guidance. Uh, well, the forward guidance was never <laughs> was never actually meant to be a prediction. It was only ever meant to uh, influence demand or something at the time. And uh, I think we learnt then that you should never take what the Reserve Bank says as an actual prediction about what's likely to happen in the future. It's only designed to uh, amplify their actual decisions. Mm. And it's funny, there's nothing written down anywhere about whether the Gov should be making predictions or not. Um, it's just like, you know, you think about what governs society. So as we're learning with The Voice, the number one governing document is the Constitution. Then you have legislation. And it's not even legislated that our Reserve Bank should be independent. It's only a sort of a, a written agreement, exchange of letters with Peter Costello at the time that he sort of voluntarily gave up the power. But we never had that legislated. Um, and so, um, yeah, I, I sort of think, well, um, you know, Gary Weaven had a good piece in the New Daily today about raising those questions about, you know, the government should be more responsible for interest rate policy and they've passed the buck off to the so-called independent uh, reserve bank. But, um, look, I think that jawboning and trying to, you know, manage by expectations is, is a big part of the game and, and obviously that's well, been the biggest been, mistake it's a, he's it's made. It's only been in the last 15 or so years that they've used forward guidance at all. They, they, pr yeah. Prior to that, they just shut up. Yeah. They didn't say a thing. Yeah. It's like companies, I think, uh, they started getting sued, class action for mi misleading information by not providing governance or you had to, you know, you had to, if you were going to deviate more than 15% up or down from the previous, you had to forewarn the market. You couldn't just come out and go, oh, shock horror, we've just dropped our profit by 30%. So guidance is a good thing for continuous disclosure informing markets. He just got that one wrong as financial planner to the nation and probably gets the sack because of it. Paul says, I'm a very disillusioned Bubs shareholder and will be attending my first company general meeting on 27 July when Bubs hold the EGM. I was hoping Stephen might be attending. If he isn't, can he provide some questions that need to be asked at the meeting? So, look, I'm very disillusioned as well. I paid 50 cents for my Bubs shares and they're now down to 22. So I've dropped 300 of my $500 investment. And the EGM is not a hybrid meeting. 
Bandit clashes with Macquarie Group in Sydney <laughs> on July 27. So I don't think I'm going to get there. Um, and uh, it's a very puzzling battle. It's Shareholders across the country will be wondering which of those two meetings they'll attend, Bubs well, or Macquarie. Well, that's right. Really. But the disappointing thing about the lack of um, the hybrid meeting is they're doing a webcast, but it's one way. Is, is The best thing about the hybrid meeting is you can actually vote online after listening to the debate. So for the thousands of Bub shareholders who are confused at these two quite well-credentialed groups uh, duking it out for control with the founder and the ex-chair petitioning to re- remove all four directors and appoint three new directors who are their mates. So it's a change of control by vote coup attempt by a sacked chair and founder. And there's heavyweights on both sides. Alibaba is with the current board and the, you know, a very credible Freehills partner is the chair, Kim Rathy, and she's making good good arguments and I find her impressive. But Chemist Warehouse founder Jack Gantz is, is with the coup team. And so... I generally don't know which way to go and I would like to watch the meeting live while I'm sending in a few questions to Macquarie Group from my Manningham home and decide who to vote for at the end of the debate. I mean, how can you vote before a debate? That's what, they're, that's what they're, they always do at AGMs is vote now, debate later, which makes no sense. We don't have a television debate for an election two days after polls close, do we? I mean, it's bizarre. Mark says, can companies use their cash in any which way they want or are there any limits to the use of company funds? Interesting question. You know, that is a really interesting question. So the two, the, the, a couple of obvious limits to start with is you, you're limited as to how much you can pay the non-executive directors by the fee cap that's approved at the AGM by shareholders. So with BHP, it might be four, four and a half million. So that's, that's an actual limit on what you can do. But there's no limit on the board giving a $100 million cash bonus to the CEO of BHP if they think it's in the interests of best interest of the company. So it's all about can you stand up in court and say, we think spending cash this way is in the best interests of the company as a whole. Um, But the best example of how you can just wildly spend cash without shareholder approval is actually when Slater and Gordon bought the UK firm Quindell for $1.3 billion in cash overnight without the need for shareholder approval. They raised $900 million, did a a rapid accelerated raising. Literally, the company changed overnight and there was no shareholder vote. So we don't have laws in Australia like many other countries where the shareholders get to vote on major acquisitions. And that is a flaw in our system because you can spray cash on whatever you like, buying whatever you like, and the shareholders can only later say, hey, Slater and Gordon, you've just bankrupted the company by spending $1.3 billion on a pile of crap in the UK. And there's nothing you can do about it. It was a pile of crap it too. It was. It was unbelievable. And, you, and there's, sort of, there's a bit of accounting technicalities about you can't pay dividends unless you've made a profit. There's a few little restrictions on that and you have to call it a capital return or a buyback. But overall, it's pretty, it's pretty unlimited on what boards can decide to do with cold, hard cash. And that's how we hold them to account at the AGM if they do the wrong thing. Denise says, the Money Cafe pod is my highlight of the week. My question is to bring back some form of inheritance tax, to decrease reliance on income tax to fund the Treasury. All the gains tied up in baby boomers leading, is leading to intergenerational wealth, uh, perpetuating the divide amongst social classes. This could be redistributed and perhaps have an impact on reducing property prices in future. Australia's property prices increasingly seem unsustainable. Look, I'm, you know, 24 of the 37 OECD countries have death taxes. 
Many are being encouraged by the OECD to get with the program. Uh, Warren Buffett is a massive fan. Dynastic, quote, dynastic wealth is the enemy of a meritocracy. On the, it's on the rise. So when Trump wanted to get rid of death taxes, Buffett was leading the campaign not to do it. Quote from Buffett, a quality of opportunity has been on the decline. A progressive and meaningful estate tax is needed to curb the movement of a democracy, democracy towards plutocracy. So the long-lamented Sir Joe Bjorka-Peterson has a lot to answer for for getting rid of death taxes when he did totally. so in the 90s. It was actually Malcolm Fraser who announced it before Joe Bjorka-Peterson did. So you're older than me. You're closer to death than me, Alan, so you remember this <laughs> notorious remember this. abolition of death taxes. What, 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 Malcolm what, what, Fraser what announced it, that he was going to, and then Joe Bjorka-Peterson jumped in. Was there both state and federal death taxes yeah, there back was. then? Yeah, so there you was. had both sides doing it, yeah. and then the Fed said they'll get rid of it. Well, Joe said he'd Joe get rid of it too. Joe was the only state that did it, but there was a federal, uh, there was a federal uh, inheritance tax as well, and uh, so Fraser abolished that, uh, and um, uh, Joe Bjorka-Peterson precipitated the end of state inheritance well, taxes. Well, with wall-to-wall labour now everywhere except Tasmania, I reckon all the premiers should get together and go bang and introduce a death tax terif- overnight and have terrified. massive massive uh, immigration to Tasmania, to uh, liberal Tasmania, to get away from death duties. They would be crucified because it wouldn't be a promise, but Albo should do it when he does his big tax reform package for term two, which yeah. I think he's going to promise. No, I think so. you're right. I agree. Uh, Dennis says, the federal government looks to have a $19 billion plus surplus for 2022-23. Commentators such as the journalists at the ABC Insider say the dilemma for the government is how to use it, housing, Ukraine, etc. Am I missing something? Why can't the surplus be used in part to reduce the near 900 million government gross debt? Uh, well, Dennis, that is in fact what uh, Jim Chalmers is doing. He's announced that not only have they got a, a $19 billion surplus, that 87% of it is, as he puts it, going to be banked. By which he means not that it will be put in the bank, but that it will be used to reduce uh, the deficit or the debt. Which is so. a good thing. I mean, with an overheating economy, we need the government to be sucking cash out of the economy. And federal surpluses do precisely that. So, But there is a question of what would you like? We've got a question later on. What would we do with the extra $40 billion that's come in? Uh, budget improvements, et cetera, et cetera. And, Look, I know I'd want you know, probably more spending on affordable housing, uh, pokies buyback from the feds and uh, stage three tax cuts, I reckon, would be a good idea. With everyone paying record levels of tax, maybe we should have a stage three tax cut or two. You're an absolute disgrace. You're such a lefty, you know, with your tax and spend approach to life, Alan. Jesus. Now. James. Your turn. Alan was recently interviewed for an ABC podcast. Quote, are greedy companies fueling rate rises? End of quote. Where he reiterated his discontent with the impact of traditional monetary policy on inflation. He mentioned that this quote. This is because I'm a left. This is such a lefty. This is a classic giving left. To some extent, price rises and inflation are about what companies are doing. So how much is gouging by monopoly and oligopoly corporates to blame for inflation. I guess that is the point that uh, that James is asking. And uh, can this be dealt with by monetary policy? I mean, monetary policy has got nothing to do with gouging and oligopolies and, and uh, massive profit margins. Well, it? let's just take a step back. I mean, clearly price uh, inflation is about is price rises. Price rises are uh, done by companies, all of them. So it isn't even, it isn't correct to say it's to some extent 
all price rises are done by companies, we right? We just put the price of council rates up in Manningham by 3.5%. So there is a little bit of government There's uh, a bit of setting government. prices. That's true. But, well. but, but businesses, enterprises put up prices. Um, and the reason that the, the, the reason the money through policy works is because the idea is that you reduce demand in the economy by increasing interest rates. Uh, that reduces the ability of companies to put up their prices. Um, and, uh, you know, as a side effect of that, it increases uh, unemployment and that further reduces demand and crimps the ability of companies to put up prices. Well, yeah, that's what it's all about is trying to prevent companies putting up prices. That's it. I mean, is it inevitably get price gouging? Of course not. But the, but what the data shows is that company margins have increased. Yeah, because margins there's too have, much... Profit margins have increased. There's too much corporate power. There's too many big moats around uh, powerful companies that have over the years acquired most of their competitors on the ASX, thinning out the middle-ranking stocks. You lefty, you. And <laughs> I want divestment laws in Australia like they have in the US. I want the ACCC to come along and say, Commonwealth Bank, you're too big. Please sell off your um, stockbroking division Comsec. Or, you know, you're, you're just too big. Please unbundle yourselves. And they should never have let Franklin's fall to Coles and Woolies. You know, Murdoch by the Herald Times, Coles merged with Meyer. There's, there's, there's any number of ridiculous uh, takeovers that should never have been approved. And we don't have a law that forces a company to divest from a standing start. They can only be forced to divest as part of some deal when they're seeking ACCC approval to take over some other competitor. All right, we've got time for one more question, have we? Uh, we have. What about Steve? It's an interesting point, Steve, the last question. All right. Why is it that we always misuse the word independent? An independent auditor, paid, of course, by the company that engages him or her and wishing to be reappointed, can never be entirely independent. An independent director is paid by the company that employs them. Can never be entirely independent. An independent consultant, PwC, anyone can never be independent due to the remuneration issues and other conflicts of interest. Of course, companies in trouble routinely shop around for an independent re review that will give them advice they seek. It seems to me that there should always be abundant caution when a company is stressing the independence of an auditor, director, consultant. But what else, you know, would you recommend in terms of whether independent is really independent? Are you an independent journalist, Alan, or are you totally beholden to your bosses at InvestSmart, the New Daily and the ABC, and will just totally write whatever they want because they pay you? I'm totally beholden to them. You know, I ring them up and say, what would you like me to write? <laughs> no, no, they actually leave me alone. Uh, I suppose I am independent, but I'm not independent because they pay me. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. That is true. Yeah. Um, but I like to think that my greatest strength is my independence, is that I, I will happily insult anyone. And, and that's true, but go the, places but, that but, others won't. And therefore, but, to my detriment financially. But the, but the downside of that, as I was going to say, is that you're poor. Well, that's right. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. But uh, so if you can only monetize a, a, a way of being independent, that would be quite a good thing. But uh, it is interesting how we are overly focused on the independent director model. Like the US still has executive chairs like, you know, Jamie Diamond or, or Rupert. Uh, and, and, and remember the old independent expert with takeovers that companies have to hire oh, an yeah, independent expert to come out and say, this is fair or not, and they always agree with what the paying company says. And my favourite one from all time was the, the GIO, one of those 120 disappeared companies. And GIO was bought by the AMP. 
AMP was bidding $5.35 a share. And Grant Samuel and Associates, the independent expert, came out and said, we value GIO at between $5.66 and $6.71. So then AMP commissioned their own independent expert, KPMG, which came out and said that the stock was worth $4 something. <laughs> they only got to 60% or something because, because uh, it wasn't approved by the board. And then so the, the reinsurance disaster came out six months later. The stock crashed and they mopped up the rest at $2.75 at the end of the year, offering not cash but rubbish AMP shares. That's fantastic. So, so Grant, did Grant Samuel uh, say that the offer was not fair and reasonable? Yes, not fair, not reasonable. should be between $5.66 and $6.71. And within 12 months, the minority shareholders couldn't get out fast enough at $2.75. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> Long live the independent valuation expert who always happens to agree with what the board who pays them is hoping they say. <laughs> That's right. Thanks, everyone, for listening to today's episode of The Money Cafe. I'll be back next week with James Thompson. Send in your questions to themoneycafe at eurekareport.com.au and we'll answer most of them. <laughs> we unfortunately couldn't get to all of them today. Uh, but we uh, will always try and keep your questions short, please. Uh, until next week, then, I'm Alan Kohler, founder of Eureka Report, etc. And I'm Stephen Main, uh, contributor at Eureka and supporter of the English cricket team. We'll see you in a fortnight. 